have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 46. reading through the book of Genesis, and we come this morning to Genesis chapter 46, verses 28 through 34. It's on page 40 if you're using the Pew Bible. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And you can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. reaching a turning point in Matthew's gospel where this mission is about to take a, an explicitly outward focus beyond simply the teaching and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those first disciples that he called Peter and Andrew and James and John, when he summoned them to leave their fishing occupation, their boats and their nets, he told them that he would make them fishers of men. And the implication there was that they too would somehow be involved in this work of gathering the lost. Up until this point, that hasn't come to pass. They've simply been with Jesus. They've been learning from Jesus. They first received of his fullness before they could go forth and declare the excellencies of his fullness. And that's the point we start to reach here in Matthew's gospel. Those whom the Lord has healed and taught, those before whom he has displayed his excellencies as the Christ, the salvation of God, he's now preparing to look unto others and to earnestly desire that they too come to know and partake of the excellencies that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come to chapter 9, 
verses 35 through 38. This is God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, we are in great need. Our need is constant. We, even now, Lord, though we sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, need the influence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to plant uh, this word and to prepare our hearts to receive it. That good fruit harvest of excellence may be brought forth. Uh, You are the Lord of the harvest. We cannot do these things. You're pleased to use instruments, the reading and the preaching of your word. But you are the one who gives growth. And so we ask that even now, you would make this sowing of this good seed effectual unto a mighty harvest. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It seems to me that we have a conflicted relationship with pity. I thought about opening this sermon declaring that you are all pitiful. Kind of puts a fine point on it, doesn't it? I've seen scenes in movies where the word pity is used in a a rather demeaning sense. I pity you. If I were to tell you that you were the object of my pity, I don't know that you would be thrilled with me. You'd probably fight, or at least have to fight, indignation. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Pitying me. The idea that I am the object of someone's pity is almost more offensive than it is encouraging. And so it's striking for us that we see Christ's heart as the Messiah, as the Savior, as one of great pity. But the struggle with pity isn't just to be told that you're the object of pity. It's also to feel true pity. That's hard as well, isn't it? Because to feel pity is to, in its truest sense, ache. To see someone else's vulnerabilities and feel them. One of the most common portraits of compassion that Scripture gives us is the feeling of a good and true parent for their child. 
I look at my little ones. I can remember vividly when my first daughter was born. Her sheer smallness was a five-pound hole in my heart. Her vulnerability in this world was intensely felt. My heart was full of compassion for her, tenderness for her. Her vulnerability burrowed its way into my very being. So part of the problem with pity also is that it hurts to feel it. So it's not hard to see why we have a conflicted relationship with pity. It hurts to be told that you're pitiful, and it hurts to earnestly abound in true pity for others, seeing others as those who are harassed and helpless, as those who are in need, as those who are hurting, as those who are scattered, as those who are tossed about, as those who don't know their right hand from their left hand. To have that reality make its way into my heart hurts. Maybe that's one of the reasons we respond so harshly to people in need. Harshness can so often just be a defense mechanism. Vulnerability, softness, can be armored by a certain harshness, right? Nobody likes to feel that ache. I don't like to feel that ache. Stunningly, the Lord Jesus Christ sets forth his heart as abounding with tenderness and that we are the object of that tenderness. He willingly takes that ache into himself. Earlier it says that he bears our weakness, he bears our sickness. He doesn't just take our guilt upon himself. He bears our infirmities. He takes our infirmities. He enters into this mess. And he tells us that he abounds with compassion for the lost. And if we can get past the initial offense, then our only hope before the Lord is to be an object of his pity, I trust that there's a real balm to be experienced and known in seeing the Savior's heart as abounding in tenderness to those who are in need. Because I promise you, at some point or another, you're going to feel your helplessness. You're going to feel the harassment of powers that are bigger than you, whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil. And in that moment, the only balm, the only refuge, the only comfort, is to be found in the king who abounds in tenderness towards those who are in need. So let's consider the compassion of our Lord and the commission to extend compassion to others. So first, the compassion of the shepherd. B.B. Warfield writes, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus is no doubt compassion. B.B. Warfield, the emotion 
which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus, is no doubt his compassion. That's what he says explicitly in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This is the first time we hear that, but it's not the last time we're going to hear that. On four other occasions, the Lord's compassion for those who are in need is going to be set forth as what fills his heart, as a sight of others fills his vision. The compassion of our Lord. This is a strong word, compassion. As I mentioned before, Scripture uses some of the most intense and basic relationships in nature to help get our minds around this. That heart of a parent towards their child. It's one of the most basic, one of the most natural relationships of tenderness that exist in all of creation, right? And we can even see almost oblique or indirect evidence of this because there's no relationship in which more harm can be done when that tenderness is absent, right? Indicating how basic that tenderness ought to be, right? Jesus already said that. He's like, look, you're evil and you know how to do good to your children. That's how basic this bond of nature is. That's how thick this bond of tenderness is. I'm reading about some of the monstrosities in first century Rome in this novel of I, Claudius. Even the nightmarish Tiberius had a tenderness for those who were related to him by blood. Not all of them, <laughs> but some of them. Mm. It's a strong word. It means pity, warmth, tenderness, a going out of the heart towards another as you see their need. That's the other part of this, too. It's not just the tenderness that a parent would feel upon meeting their child. I saw my daughter for the first time, and admittedly, those first moments were pretty disorienting. She did not look very lovely. <laughs> It's a very disorienting experience. As a, I don't know if you can remember it. They hold the child up. I'm like, I don't think that's a human baby. <laughs> but then they clean the baby up, and then they bring the baby back. And you're like, that's a human baby. And your heart starts to fill with tenderness. So perhaps there is something in that first <laughs> encounter with the child that fits. It's not a lovely object. It's not something that initially commends itself to tenderness. It's something that's a little bit more off-putting. And yet the heart of compassion that's set on display here is even in the face of the off-putting, there is motion towards. Such is the heart of the Savior. Such is our God. The most beautiful portraits of compassion that I could think of in literature were Mr. Peggotty, David Copperfield, his adopted daughter, little Emily, 
abandoned him, forsook all of those years of his warmth and his kindness and turning her back on him in a moment of weakness and being seduced by the villainous Steerforth who promised her riches and comfort and luxury only to abandon her. And instead of anger, Mr. Peggotty abounds in compassion and it sets him off on a lifelong journey to retrieve her. And he finds her in the darkest halls of human habitation in the city of London. And he picks her up. And he brings her home. Doubtless Dickens had the gospel narrative in mind as he's composing this glorious trajectory of compassion, tenderness, and a course charted by a heart bent on retrieving doing good to one who was lost as a charitable construal of their circumstances. And so we can see even from this that this isn't just some empty sentiment. It's not just some faint warmth that fills him. It is a drive. It's an energy that compels him. You can hear it. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction. Do you hear it? All the cities and the villages, every disease, every affliction. There's a tirelessness to his labors. A relentlessness, a sort of single-minded pursuit driven by compassion. That's what the text leads us to believe. Can you see that? Do you hear that? I think about how many projects I've taken up and left off. How many endeavors I've started but haven't finished. Or even the things that I engage in that my mind is so easily distracted in. refreshed here by the undivided heart of our Lord on display in this tireless doing of good fueled by a, an earnest love for the lost. Can you see that here? You see I'm not making that up. Matthew's given this to us to press that portrait of our king upon our hearts because he knows we need it. Because, beloved, we are the sheep without a shepherd left to ourselves. We've mentioned before and mention it again, none of us particularly enjoy that designation or if we're willing to tolerate it it's not for very long and not with much depth it goes back to the original problem of feeling the indignation at being the object of someone's pity feeling the truth of my need my helplessness a helplessness which is here pressed upon all of our hearts as he tells us what our condition is. I don't know how you would characterize your 
condition apart from the Lord's grace, but I doubt that you would use the image of a sheep. A lamb, lost, helpless. There's an intense vulnerability to it. There's a hopelessness to it. There's no surviving as a sheep in the wilderness. They have nothing at their disposal to defend themselves. They have no bearing on how to find safety, how to find pasture, how to get home. The Lord says this is who we are. And if we can feel something of that vulnerability start to penetrate our heart, we're positioned to feel the excellencies of the shepherd who retrieves and gathers and guides and protects and leads along still waters and brings into green pastures. And even when he takes us into places that are accurately described as the valley of the shadow of death, a nightmare in this waking life, We begin to root our confidence, root our hope, root our comfort, not in our sheepishness, but in his excellence as the shepherd. The balm of his compassion comes to us as we feel the ache of our vulnerability, which he presses upon us here through the image of sheep without a shepherd. I mentioned the novel, Carmack McCarthy's The Road. Again, it's an intense one. Near the close of the novel, the father is forced to grapple with the unthinkable, that his little child, the one whom he's protected his whole life in this harsh, cruel pitiless world. The father, the only one who stands between the child and certain ruin and destruction is about to die. And he has to come to terms with the vulnerability that he's about to release. And all he has at the end is a faint and nebulous hope that somehow, maybe some way, in this cruel, desolate world, good might find this child. Cormac McCarthy's a profound thinker, but you can't help but read it as a Christian and say, your hope is baseless. You have no reason to hope that. You have no cause to hope that. It's just a shot in the dark. But not so for the Christian. For the Christian, the same desolate world opens up that we see on display in McCarthy's The Road. The only wrinkle is is the shepherd who gathers the vulnerable is the one who's overcome that world. The one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. The antidote to that vulnerableness is not convincing ourselves that we're not that vulnerable. It's in convincing ourselves that our shepherd is that wonderful, beloved. Can you see that here? But notice also how it's not just something that drives him 
throughout all the cities, all the villages, to heal all the sickness, all the affliction. Thus, it's not a faint compassion, it's not a nebulous compassion, it is a relentlessly driving compassion, but it's also a compassion that is steeped in wisdom. Because he provides perfectly for the true need. Think about that. Think about how often you're confronted with situations of need. And even if your heart goes out in some semblance of warmth towards the need, how quickly you're arrested by your uncertainty over what to do. (laughs) How can I do true good to this person? Even if I wanted to do good, do I even have the power to do good? So even our best intentions, even those best impulses are so often arrested by either ignorance or impotence. Not so the king. Not so the king, beloved. Do you hear him? Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. So we see here the particular provision made in compassion. That Christ came not to simply give a faint hope, but to address a specific need. And we hear in part this need unpacked for us in these three descriptions. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. If anyone were to want to see Christ's three offices in these, as prophet, king, and priest, respectively, I don't think you'd be far from the mark. He's teaching them. Left to themselves, they're destitute of true knowledge, true knowledge of who God is, true knowledge of what man's plight is, true knowledge of where God's favor is to be found in grace and mercy. Destitute, all without the instruction of Christ. Think about this. He even had to go to Israel, steeped in the law and the prophets, yet even that was insufficient apart from his ministry. He had to bring it to its conclusion. He had to take that which was presented in shadows and bring it into light, or rather, he who was presented in shadows had to step into the light for it to be made efficacious. True and saving knowledge of God can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Who you are can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Where you're going can be found in Christ and in Christ alone. But take heart, he has come to teach you these things. Some of the most basic crises that you meet, right? I remember traipsing along the halls of undergraduate learning as a teaching assistant. They were wrestling with these guys. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. And they were asking it in the professional sense, and there's a sense in which that's fair, but I think there is a deeper sense to that lostness as well. And the reason why it feels so intense wrestling with it in a relative sense is because people are lost in an absolute sense. Jesus says, I came to teach you about that. I came to teach you about who made you. 
I came to teach you about those aches that you feel in your heart. I came to teach you about the reality of sin, the heinousness of it, the hurt that you feel when it's done against you. I came to explain all of that to you in full terms. I came to teach. But not just that, he came to bring hope, to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. What does this mean? Well, consider what we just observed in the previous episode. A man demon-oppressed. There's a kingdom of darkness which is real, which we said, again, apart from Christ, we were all subject to. We didn't even know it. We were slaves in this kingdom, though we, conv- we were convinced that we were free. We were following the prince of the power of the air, but we thought that we were simply doing what we wanted to do. We were doing what we wanted to do, but we weren't simply doing what we wanted to do. That's the only kingdom there is apart from Christ. So he comes and he brings good news about a different kingdom altogether. One that's configured not in death, but in life. Not in darkness, but in life. Not in despair, but in hope. You know despair. You know despair. Right? The excellencies of this kingdom are the excellencies of hope. The excellencies of this kingdom are the excellencies of righteousness. The excellencies of this kingdom are the excellencies of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans 14. The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That means left to ourselves, we are unrighteous, joyless, and chaotic. (laughs) Marred by death, sin, despair. This is good news then. If that's the reality of the land from which we all hail, well, behold a different king altogether. One who instead of harassing and exploiting his people, gives himself for his people. One who instead of shoving your face in your sin, says I'll bear your sin and then I'll teach you a better way in new life. The good news of the kingdom and the king who exercises that reign in grace. And he also goes about healing, teaching, proclaiming, healing. Now we've met time and time again the good physician, and we're all invited to fix our eyes on the glorious truth that when Christ is with us bodily, every bodily ailment flees. As Christ is with us spiritually, he is healing our spiritual disease. You with me? It's not that he doesn't heal anymore. It's that he is at work healing us at that deeper level by virtue of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the power of the Spirit, not healing broken eyes, but enlightening the eyes of your heart in the knowledge of God. He's curing us from that most fundamental disease of sin. He continues to do this, beloved, as he washes you with his blood, 
as he teaches you to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit and the pathways of righteousness for his namesake. Again, this is no faint compassion, some ill-defined well wishes for someone who is in need. This is a power which compels Christ to draw near and to address those most basic needs of those who are harassed and helpless. Beloved, it was in compassion that he laid down his life. It was in great mercy that he bore the dead of our sins in his body such that he could tell you, each and every one of his own, fully forgiven, welcomed with the Father, assured of everlasting life. Beloved, make no mistake, he did not move towards you because some flicker of your potentiality shone forth. He moved towards you in mercy. Mark Jones highlights, he did not merely react to those who deserved mercy, but rather actively pursued those who deserved wrath. He pursued opportunities to be merciful, especially in his voluntary death on the cross. You do not deserve what you have received. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he snatched you from ignorance? Snatched you from darkness? Snatched you from despair? Snatched you from death, both in this life and the one to come? and established you in himself, the one in whom the riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge are, established you in his kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son, a kingdom of light and life and peace, and who has healed your disease such that even though you still bear sin about in you, it no longer leads to death. Do you believe that you've received this by God's mercy alone? That's what he wants to press upon our hearts here because he's about to make an extended point and saying, if you've received it, then you should want them to receive it. If this is how he looked at you while you were lost, is that how you look at them while they're lost? So that's the last point. The sending out of the workers. That's when he closes. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherds. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In the Lord's design, those who have received mercy are most optimally established to earnestly desire that mercy to come unto others. Those who have seen the heart of the shepherd are now pushed out, as it were, to go share that heart of the shepherd with those who need it just as desperately as we did. 
Do you see the brilliance of this design? You can feel the, the urgency with which we ought to be going. I was like, I need it. I'm so glad he gave it to me. Like, I was completely lost. I had no hope. Death had me through and through, and he snatched me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was pure kindness. I wish it had happened sooner. <laughs> that same urgency now is levied to put a little pep in our step, as it were, to eagerly desire the lost to hear of the excellencies of this compassion, this Savior. The Lord puts forth a number of considerations to propel us on in this. First, notice that the need continues. There's something slightly obscure about what he means by the harvest is plentiful. He says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. What does he mean? What is he seeing? What does he recognize in what's before him that would lead him to say, look, the harvest is plentiful. We should probably say more than this, but in the interest of time, notice that it's connected to verse 36. He says, then he said. So the observation in 36 is the basis for what he says in 37. What does he say in 36? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. How do we know if the harvest is plentiful? Are people lost? The Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Do you see how I got there? Then he said to them, he sees sheep, helpless, vulnerable, harassed, and he says the harvest is plentiful. The indication that the harvest is plentiful is the plain lostness of the people and the fact that their earthly rulers offer nothing to them. So in that sense, we have to conclude the harvest is still plentiful, don't we? People don't know their right hand from their left. We didn't know our right hand from our left. You thought up was down and down was up. He snatched you and he flipped you upside down or right side up. He sets the need before us that's so plainly on display in the world. Again, mark our wrongheadedness, or I guess the vulnerability to wrongheadedness. We see people who are lost, and again, make no mistake, it's not a pretty lostness. It's not a damsel in distress like waiting in a castle. Beautiful. Help, save me. It's as ugly as your life prior to Christ. That's the face of lostness. That's what Christ moved towards in compassion. Right? We think, we think that way, don't we? We look at the lost now and we don't see those to whom our hearts move out in compassion. 
We look at lostness and we think threat, enemy, eliminate. <laughs> now again, there's a sense in which, yeah, Lord, slay them in grace. <laughs> there is another strand in Scripture that does say, Lord, how long... We long for sin to be done away with. So there's a sense in which both those strands are appropriate. But let's feel this one because we're right here. (laughs) He looks out on a world that doesn't know its right hand from its left. And instead of recoiling in revulsion, he moves towards them in compassion. Do we? That's the question. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think at least at some level we have to say no. Right? And it's far easier for us to respond differently. Well, let's just highlight the absurdity of that because that's not how he looked at us when we were lost. And if he had looked at us in our lost state, how we are prone to look at others in their lost state, who would be saved? No one. Let's leverage the reality of his compassionate gaze upon us to fuel our compassionate gaze upon others and let it result in what? Not all of us becoming missionaries. Pray. How good a starting point is that? That's what he says, right? Is it? I mean, to the question... What should we do to bring Christ's mercy to the lost? Jesus says what? Pray. We say, that's not enough. (laughs) And maybe you do and should go on to say more. But what happens in saying more, really? I'm going to tell you what happens. When was the last time you prayed this? In insisting that there should be more, we don't even do what he tells us to do. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, raise up workers for the harvest? When was the last time you prayed that? Did you even know you should be praying that? So we talk about all of this work for missions, and we got to do this and that, when it seems to start, one, with a heart that's struck with the compassion that you've received, Two, an earnest turning and compassion to those who are in the state in which you were very recently in. And then three, recognizing that the only hope that they have is for God to save them. Really. And so you pray. And to all foolishness that says that's not enough, Christ says simply, it's his harvest. One might sow, another might plant, another might water, but who gives the growth, beloved? It's the Lord of the harvest. So by all means, let's give. Like we give. We should give. I'm delighted. We get, we get to partner with this beautiful family as they go and We give. We give of our finances. Let's share the gospel. By all means, I pray you're sharing God. I pray you're sharing it out of an earnest desire to do good to others. But above all, 
Let's pray. It plainly comes to us as the instruction from the Lord. And quite frankly, its practicability is off the charts. You don't need to move overseas to do it. You don't need to have a lot of money to do it. All you need to do it is to be earnestly struck by the compassion that you've received and to earnestly desire that others find that compassion and then pray that very thing. Can we commit to doing that? Can we resolve out of the sense of the mercy that has been extended unto us to pray to the Lord of the harvest that others are brought in to share this same mercy? Let's pray. What an excellent king that we have, O Lord, and that he has revealed you, Heavenly Father, is too wonderful for words. And the giving of his life for the flock and instructing us in patience and ruling and defending us with constant vigilance and healing us and in nurturing us in hope Father, these are very great and precious gifts. So we do pray that you would fill our hearts with a sense of the compassion of our King, the mercy which has been extended unto us, and fill our hearts with an earnest desire that this mercy extend as far as the curse is found. We ask in Christ's name, amen.